Welcome to Innovating Leadership, co-creating our future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. I am delighted to be joined today by Kayvon Tucker, CEO and founder of Consciously, a purpose-driven executive leadership coaching firm. Kayvon, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Maureen. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your career journey? Because you've had a lot of interesting stops along the way. Yeah, my background's in psychology. So I got my bachelor's in psychology. For most folks who have an undergrad in psychology, they know that in order to feed yourself, you actually need to do something else. So right around the time I was finishing up my bachelor's, I was searching for another option for myself. And I thought about becoming a therapist, which is what most folks do. Thought about social work. But I ended up talking to folks who were in those industries, and they all kind of seemed miserable. I thought about what are my other options. And one of those options was industrial organizational psychology. The school that I went to, Cal State Long Beach, had their own programs. And so I decided to go that route. So I went down that path, got my master's, which was really fun and learned a lot. Got my first big boy job out of Southern California Edison, where I was doing training program analysis. That grew into training program manager. And then one day I woke up and I was miserable. I now understand that to be depression. And so I started on my journey towards figuring out, well, who am I and what do I really want? I went in and got some help, saw a therapist, and started this discovery of, well, who is Kayvon? And what does Kayvon really want out of this life? And then one of my mentors at the time said, hey, Kayvon, the way you facilitate is very coach-like. Have you ever been through coaching training? I'm like, what's coaching? So he said, okay, Kayvon, go to CTI Fundamentals and call me in the morning. So I went through this three-day training program and walked out feeling like I had found my life purpose. Like you can be with people, listen to them, support them, essentially love on people as human beings, help them nurture themselves as leaders and get paid well to do it. Sign me up for that. So that's the path that I went down, right? I founded Consciously at the time with zero clients because I knew that this was going to be the channel for me to do this very purposeful work. And then that's when kind of magically Netflix reached out to me. Netflix said, hey, Kayvon, we love the work that you're doing at Southern California Edison. Would you want to do that? And then also do some manager development stuff. And at that time, I'm like, yeah, sure. So I took that role. And then maybe after a year and a half, Amazon reached out to me out of nowhere and said, hey, Kayvon, love what you're doing at Netflix. Do you want to do more and travel the world and facilitate leadership development? And I'm like, yeah, that's a no, no brainer. Right around the time that I was kind of getting tired of being on airplanes and traveling, um, as, as most folks know, it's like very glamorous at first. And after a little while, you get tired. Google reached out to me and said, hey, Kayvon, do you want to run your own shop in leadership development? You'll be able to coach, you'll be able to set strategy and vision and design programs and run them. And I'm like, that's a perfect opportunity for me. So I took that role. It happened to be the opportunity of a lifetime, just like the one at Amazon and just like the one at Netflix. When I was at my third year at Google, I had a baby who happens to be the gift of a lifetime. As many folks know, you have a kid and then everything changes. And the same is true for me. Had a Yana and I realized that Now is the time for me to really become the father that I always wanted to be, which was being ultra present. And I couldn't see being that ultra present father and being a full-time employee at Google and running my own business. They didn't all work together. And so I fortunately, while I was on paternity leave, had the opportunity to build my practice. How did the different career stops shape your leadership philosophy? I went into each of these opportunities 
kind of like with the background of organizational psychology. So I'm a leadership and culture nerd. So I go into these organizations wanting to learn more about what they're doing and how they're doing, and then applying that to my leadership, also applying that to my philosophies around what helps organizations succeed. And so each one of the organizations, Netflix is one, as many folks know, has a very unique culture. They do things very differently. They have a unique coaching culture that's not really pronounced or spoken about, but everyone meets with everyone. There's 30-minute meetings happening all the time. And in these 30-minute meetings, leaders are coaching each other. <laughs> Another thing that has stuck with me from Netflix is their freedom and responsibility. So they give people lots of free range to be the leaders that they want to be, to be creative, to explore, and to expand. And that's a big part of how I like to coach. And that's a big part of how I like to lead is to give people room to grow. And when you do that, people will surprise you. And this is a part of the reason why like Netflix is so successful and does so many creative things in their work is because they give people room. Another that I think is really important is disagree and commit. We ha as human beings have this tendency to want to agree with everyone around us as if that's the most important thing. I believe alignment is important, but you don't have to agree. And a, a really big, important leadership philosophy is like being okay to disagree, but continue to move forward. And so those are some things that I picked up along the way. Tell me more about the how do we disagree and move forward, Yeah, keeping people engaged. Just thinking about this whole quiet quitting thing, mm. you may tell me I have to move forward and I may comply, <laughs> but that doesn't mean you're going to get my best work. Yeah, We call it consent in, in my world, but I consent to experiment and see what comes out with an agreement that we will revisit at X period of time. And so my voice gets heard if our producer and I agree to go do something. And it wouldn't be his preference, but he's going to try because he's a good scientist. Yeah. But then we come back in a month and we've looked at the data and he happened to be right, which is pretty much the case always. <laughs> but, <laughs> we, but, we, but I still choose to do what I choose to do sometimes. But that ability to continue to revisit for us works. And I wonder how people do that at scale at a Google and an AWS. It's a beautiful question. It's very much how you described your relationship with your producer. This is an individual thing, right? Leadership is relationships. And so what I see happening in these organizations and what I do in my coaching and in my leadership of consciously is very similar. It's like, okay, well, we know as a group, we want to get to that place over there. We might not all agree on how to get there. At some point, we're going to have to choose a path together. And we as an individuals, we set goals. And so it might look like, okay, well, what's goal one? Goal one is X number of widgets by this time. How do we get there? Okay, well, let's figure that out. Let's try this, similar to what you said. Let's experiment. Let's see if this gets us there. And if it does, great. Then let's repeat that or add to that to help us get to the next goal post. If it doesn't, that's okay too. Let's talk about it. What didn't happen? What did happen and what didn't happen? And what's going to help us get to the next goal line? Or what's going to help us get to the original one that we came up short on? So at scale, at a place like AWS, the way this looks is they're essentially like postmortems. There's this practice of the five whys. So you ask, like, when something doesn't go the way that you want it to, you ask the five whys. Why didn't it happen the way that we wanted it to? Then why did that happen? And then why did that happen? And then why did that happen? And then you eventually get to, like, a root cause. It's almost like a practice of root cause analysis to figure out what went wrong mm -hmm. and how do we want to adjust. 
And all of that is scalable through writing. So writing is really big at places like AWS and becoming bigger at places like Google, where it's like, okay, we're going to actually write about and explain what happened in detail. And that helps the leaders who are responsible for this work reflect and get clear and then also share with others. So there's practices of transparency. So the writing culture at places like Netflix and Amazon is really strong. Not as strong at places like Google, at least not in my experience in the places I worked at Google, but it's becoming stronger. People are getting used to sharing their experience through the process of writing, which makes it available to everyone else that you work with to, say, to essentially show your work and share your work with other people. I'm really curious about this. Yeah, yeah. Tell me the technology behind it, I guess. Do we go in at the end of a project and say both the five ways on what worked and also what not just what didn't, but what did we do well? Yeah. And does then everyone write up a two-page summary and they all throw it in the middle of the room and share pieces of paper? Do they post it on Slack? Yeah. I'm just imagining this can be time-consuming. It's enough to write my own stuff, but now I got to read 25 people's stuff. And I'll talk about AWS because this is where it's probably the strongest in the places I've seen. Again, it's big at Netflix too. Writing is really big at Netflix, but not as big as it is at Amazon. Hmm. At Amazon, it can be a time-intensive process. It can be. And this is something that not a lot of folks know who haven't worked at these places, but nothing really gets done unless you write a paper. Hmm. Like You've got to write a paper to initiate a project. Like It is the way work is done. And so it, the paper writing process might take weeks, could take months depending on who you are and what kind of leader you are and how you go about gaining perspective from the people that you're going to be working with. It's a, essentially a process of enrolling. It's a leadership practice. It's a process of enrolling people, giving people the opportunity to say, yes, I like this idea or no, I don't like this idea. Maybe we should add this thing to this approach or to this project. And then you pull everybody together and then everybody says, okay, this looks good. Or no, there's some tweaks I want to make. You can imagine when you're working with leaders who are at the highest levels or even managers, that can take a while. But the nice thing, and this is part of the reason why Amazon grows so rapidly, is because they do this. Because once everyone has agreed and aligned, and again, agreement is not always the case. But once everyone is aligned and say, okay, we know what this project is, why it's being funded, who's going to be on it, who's supporting it, who the sponsors are. Once all that has been clarified, we've all had a chance to look at it, then projects fly. And you see the organization fly because projects are flying. That's the really unique thing about how AWS specifically does this kind of work or in, involves this kind of practice is that, yeah, there's a buildup of work up to the point where the project gets approval. And then once the project gets approval, then it's downhill from there. Whereas in other organizations, in my experience, and it's kind of like at Google, where if the writing culture is not strong and people aren't really doing this, then you have an individual who has a great idea. Manager says, yes, go do it. And then they start it and then it stalls and it doesn't get the support or the person who started the project didn't actually talk to the senior leader who's the sponsor of the program. The senior leader says, hey, why are we doing this? We don't need to do this. We should actually talk about these other things that are important to us. That stuff happens all the time across different organizations. It doesn't happen as much in places like AWS. I'm thinking of the charter process. Hmm. I wonder if it looks a little bit like an organizational charter, but it talks about objectives, major deliverables, responsibilities, who are the sponsors, how do we get people engaged, what's the timing, which 
sounds like a simple checkbox experience, but if it involves more than three people, it's never a simple checkbox experience if they are getting enrolled and getting funding because you're competing for funding. I think everyone is deciding between multiple projects at any given point. Yeah, absolutely. And Amazon specifically practices this thing called frugality. And so as much as they've grown and as much as it might look like they throw resources around, Amazon's actually really frugal and they're really thoughtful about how they decide to use the resources that they have. Um, They want to make smart bets like any organization. Amazon really, really cares about making smart bets. So this process is essentially helping leaders clarify thought, but also pressure testing ideas. That's part of the reason why people come together. It's like, okay, we're going to review this paper, review this idea, and people poke holes. That's a point. The point is to pressure test whether this is actually going to get us to where we want to be. Once you have your paper approved, everyone has pressure tested your idea, and it's likely going to be a much stronger idea than if you're just, hey, I'm Kayvon, I have a good idea, I get my manager's approval, and let's go. Very different versus like, okay, I need to convince and get support from 12 people, including my CEO or my SVP, to move this project forward. As you say that, I think of these ideas of anti-fragile resilience and how do we keep our organization strong, Mm -hmm. solid processes, solid balance sheet, discipline around how we invest in projects. We think about the money, but also the precious time of people because this idea of you're going to do more with less until people collapse and then you don't. So (laughs) how do you do smart instead of more and invest people's energy in things that will impact the business and the well-being of stakeholders rather than just we're going to pile stuff on your head? Yeah, absolutely. None of these places are perfect. None of the cultures are perfect. They're all doing their best, taking their own approach to creating the world that the leaders of the organizations want to see. And so things like burnout, uh, not unique. Amazon, as an example, and we're talking about Amazon, all their amazing practices. And Amazon has lots of employees who are burnt out because of all the work that they're taking on or because of how they set goals. Same thing at Google, same thing pretty much across tech. So for me, it's a process thing. And then there's a culture there's a culture of how how do we set goals? Like, what are we reaching for? Are we trying to grow as fast as we can? Like, what's our purpose? Like, how do we want to leave the earth? Not just like, what are all the cool things we want to create? How do we want to leave the earth? That is a question that I'm, I'm asking the folks that I'm co-leading consciously with. Because what we want to do is bolster the great work that all these leaders in these organizations are doing, but also help them do it in a sustainable way. Right, So we're not having the same levels of emotional exhaustion that we're seeing today. And also organizations who won't feel the need to constrain themselves in the ways that they are. I would love to see organizations feel like they have right-sized their organization so that when something like this happens, the amount of recoil isn't as great when people's lives aren't as heavily impacted. That takes forethought and that also takes some personal restraint. I know these leaders. These leaders are my friends who say, I want to do big, great things and I want to do them now. What I tend to ask the senior leaders that I support is like, okay, well, what makes that important for you right now? Is it a fear-driven thing or is this like a purpose-driven thing? We sort through that. The result is usually moving forward, but moving forward at a much more sustainable pace. That sounds like in part the process of self-identification and reflection 
and probably why you named your firm consciously is helping people become more conscious. Absolutely. My wife and I founded this company years ago, and we centered on this idea that as people learn more about who they are and what's important to them, uh, they create more good for themselves and the people around them. And as leaders learn how to be better leaders, they heal. And as people learn how to heal themselves, they naturally become leaders. And so we're kind of at this nexus where we're helping leaders heal at scale through the work that we're doing and the cultures that we're creating from the leaders that we get to support. And for us, that's really important because you can do all the cool things that you can in the world, but if you burn your people out and you use up all your resources and then people lose their jobs, what was all that greatness for? How did you get here? There are other people who have gone through a similar life journey and they didn't index as heavily on consciousness. They may have indexed more on success looks like the other folks you're describing and what our culture tells us, right? Our culture often tells us bigger job, bigger house, that means you made it. Yeah. And you're indexing more on consciousness. That's a slightly different trajectory than most of us see modeled as success. Thank you. The big turning point was that depression that I mentioned earlier, and I glanced over it, that was huge for me. I, I consider that one of my first uh, quote-unquote leadership crucibles. And what I learned from that was that you can do all the things that you've been told are important. You can get the degrees, you can get the job, you can make six figures, you can reach all the goals that somebody else told you are really important and still be miserable. And I was fortunate to learn that like mid to late 20s. From that point, I started to ask, well, what is it that I actually want? What is really important to me? Well, first, who am I? And then what is it that I want? And what I have continued to learn is that it's so much more about connecting and being with people. It's so much more about helping and supporting than it is about the accolades or the material possessions or just more. It's not about more for me. It's about connection. It's about love. It's, it's about embracing one another. It's about supporting the planet. It's about all these other things that really fulfill me and fulfill all of us when we actually sit down and ask ourselves what's most important. It's rarely about the material things. It's rarely about the accomplishments. And this is from the questions that I ask my clients. It's almost always about helping people, helping make the planet and the earth better. And so I've, I've centered my work on that. Thank you for sharing something that I assume is very deep and precious, the journey through depression. The stats are more than a third of the population are navigating right now depression. Yeah. And it is both disorienting and an opportunity. And I'm assuming in the middle of it, most people feel just the disorientation. Yeah. I'll never get through this. Something I want to write about and talk about is that this moment in my life actually triggered by reductions in force. Mm. It wasn't me who actually lost my job, but the anxiety around potentially losing my job drove me down this spiral. And then some of my colleagues ended up taking their lives. Mm. And I know that sounds extreme, but that's the reality that these events create tremendous amounts of pain for individuals. It doesn't have to be that way for anyone who, who might be out there who's like going through these reductions in force. And actually, some of my clients have lost their jobs recently. It's a terrible, terrible time. It's very, very, can be a very painful experience. And it also could be an awakening. 
and it will be for many people. It was for me. If you take that opportunity to say, okay, hey, this is where I'm at. And the question I often ask my clients who, who might be experiencing something that they deem as like less than ideal or unfortunate or angers them or saddens them or scares them is how might this experience be for you? You know, if the universe or God or source or whatever you want to call it is on your side, which I believe it to be, how might this time frame, how might this life situation actually be for you? And if you can sit with that question and actually answer it, there's going to be something beautiful that comes out of that. But it does take a little bit of work to reflect and search for that kind of answer. But that's my belief. My belief is that everything that happens in our lives is for us in some way. It's our job as leaders to find that thing. This is a touchy subject. I've got someone on my team who's struggling. How much as a leader can I support them? And I'm thinking even some of the HIPAA rules and what am I allowed to ask? What am I allowed to recommend? Even as a coach, I'm real sensitive to I don't make a mental health diagnosis. And I had a client come back to me the boss of the client. The client had said he had this terminal disease and was suffering from depression. And my my recommendation anytime someone says they're suffering from depression is, are you seeing a professional? Yes. It is unlikely for many people to navigate this without the assistance of someone with that expertise. Yeah. And even that was seen as potentially an overstep. I mean, this is just what I would do as a caring human being. We have to help people so that they don't suffer more than they need to. Absolutely. And I, I appreciate your sensitivity to that. I believe that's the right question. Right. And again, this is my wife is a licensed clinical social worker. That's why we started this organization together, because there are some tools as a coach that I have and some things that I can do that will support people through these times. And there's some tools that Jessica has, my wife that will better support people through times like this. And so we like to work together. And so the question like, do you have a therapist is a valid question. I think at any point in time, they don't have to answer. They can say, I declined to answer. If you have a trusting coaching relationship, I would imagine they would be willing to answer. And I, I've asked multiple clients of mine, what are your thoughts on therapy? Have you thought about it? You know, when we have that kind of trusting relationship, I can say, hey, this specific topic that you're talking about, might be good to bring to a therapist because for me, it's kind of out of the scope of my practice, right? Like I'm not digging into people's family history. I work with what's present and I support people through what's present and I help people heal some of the things that they're experiencing. But really my focus is on where you want to go, how you want to be, how you want to feel, not digging into the things that have led us to feel the way that we do today. That's my wife's job, right? And I respect that job tremendously. I had a client who was struggling and I happened to call him just to check in on him and he had just overdosed and I was able to get someone to go retrieve him and get him to care and he's alive and thriving now. Wow. His issues were work-related issues. They were also, I think, chemical in nature, but sparked by something that had happened in the workplace. I know it's a fine line, but boy, just demonstrating care letting people know that we're here for them because he didn't have to pick up the phone at that moment. That was not a day he wanted to chat. So his willingness to answer. That's a reflection of how trusting your relationship is. That's the power of things like coaching and things like counseling and why consciously so centered on supporting both of these sacred relationships. 
having that kind of relationship, having someone in your life that you can trust with the most intimate things going on in your life, having that one person, if you only have one person, like that's, that's enough. If you have no one, that's really tough, right? So therapist or coach or both, which I actually recommend both. I have both. My wife has had both. Many of the people I work with at Consciously have both. There's really a lot of value in having both, but having one of the two can be life-changing. It has been for me, and I know it has for many people. It has been for me as well. You said something during one of your answers, believing that the universe supports us. Yeah. That's a big statement and an important one, that in those times of struggle, are we able to just have the touchstone? I think I'm always playing with my necklace. What do I touch conceptually that on my darkest moments, I can feel like someone loves me. I have a purpose. I am supported and this will work out. Now, it may take a long time for this to work out. It may be ugly in the process, but that I will make it through the other side intact. Absolutely. Absolutely. Tell me a little bit about what that looks like for you. Yeah. Well, what came up for me as you were talking was perseverance. We consider that like a conscious practice or consciously leading practice which is just continuing to move forward, you know, one step at a time, whether you're in a place where you just lost your job and you're like, well, where do I go? Continuing to move forward, like doing the next thing could be a very, very small step, but just taking a small step forward will eventually get you to where you want to be. For me, getting to this place where I actually believe the universe has my back has taken a lot of testing and proof, right? I didn't always believe that. But what I've learned is that if I just keep going, what you just said, things will eventually work out. The reason why I encourage folks to really begin to trust that, to have faith in some ways, is it makes your life so much more pleasant. <laughs> the experience of just trusting is way more pleasurable, way more enjoyable than the experience of distrusting, right? The experience of always wondering whether things are going to work out. If you trust that things will work out, then small things that do pop up that are less ideal don't bother you. Oh, okay, that thing happened. That's okay. I'm just going to keep going. And if I keep going, I know that I will get to where I want to be. This little issue is no problem because I know ultimately things will work out. Let's just figure out our way around this little inconvenience and keep going on. When you can do that, you move your life forward much more easily faster, you get to where you want to be a lot, lot more graceful than if you're always worried about the things that could go wrong. So it's, it's definitely been proven to me over the years, but it took some work to get to this place. You mentioned when little things go wrong. How about when someone loses a job or loses a child or loses a spouse? Those are not little. And those are the things that I think, I want to say dent our souls right? That they touch us to our core. And we really wonder, can I, and do I want to be here? Thank you for that question. That's a big one. What I didn't mention earlier was that that state of depression that I went through, I was actually suicidal mm. and was contemplating ending it all. The gift of coming out of that was that I got to choose my life. I got to choose 
to continue to go forward. And I've been continuing to choose to go forward ever since. And so what I would say to anyone that's facing really big challenges is one, what do you want? And this is probably one of the simplest, but one of the most difficult questions to answer for folks is what do you want? What do you want your life to look like a year from now, two years from now? If you say, okay, you know what? I just, I just want things to go back to normal. It's like, okay, well, we got to work through that because there's things have changed, right? Can't go back. But what do you want in the future? If the answer is I want to live a nice life, then that's enough. That's enough to start moving forward. So what I would encourage folks to do who are working through really big, challenging things is to take your time. Take as much time as you can. Grieve the experience. Grieve the things that you have lost or are losing. Take care of yourself. And when you're ready, start taking small steps forward. And if you keep doing that, you keep getting up, you take your time, eventually you will get where you want to be. Or hire a coach like Kayvon or anyone <laughs> at Consciously uh, to support you along that journey because we love to do that. I'm going to step in, Maureen, mm -hmm. and I'll need Maureen to phrase the question somehow. But Dan, we edit you in. You are part of this process and you should just ask the question. Okay. Kayvon, I lost my son to suicide about 10 years ago. Mm. I want to bring this back to the leadership aspects. A major component in me getting through the grieving process is I was fortunate enough to have a very understanding boss, which was unusual for our organization. It was a very dysfunctional, large bureaucracy. Mm. He was willing to buck the company culture to give me the space I needed to get through that. What is the role of leaders in getting through, in your case, that coming out of those notions of ending it all? And in my case, recovering from that extreme trauma of losing someone who did go through with it, what can leaders do to help that process? Thank you. Thank you for sharing that and that beautiful, powerful question. I think what that leader did for you is what leaders can do, create space. Create space for the people who they're leading to take care of themselves, to do what they need to do for themselves, to create space for leaders to be. That's what coaches do. Coaching is a leadership skill. And so in that way, during that time during your life, your leader, your boss was very coach-like. He just lets you take the space that you needed. That's what I want all leaders to be doing is just create space. Create space for the people on your team to work through what they need to work through. Sometimes you ask them questions. And the best question can be like, how are you? And to really sit there and let the person answer and to be with them with whatever they show up with. That's healing. That can be very healing for individuals. Again, coaching is about the relationship. And so, so many people have never actually been given that space that they needed and been listened to and be loved. And if you can just do that as a leader, we can change this world together. And that's what I want. I want us to change the world one relationship at a time. Thank you so much for that question. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was spot on. Dan, since you have now joined our conversation, <laughs> welcome. <laughs> and for our listeners, Dan is our executive producer and he's in all of the conversations. So 
typically sending questions by chat, but I'm delighted to have your voice in this conversation. Do you have any more questions of Kayvon? This is important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We look at all the statistics. Mental health issues are on the rise. The workplace is a major reason behind that. Yeah. This is not traditional for a leader. Traditionally, leaders don't view themselves, as you're saying, in a relationship with their teams. But the reality of our world is pointing to the fact that it is so very critical because it is new and different for leaders to see themselves in relationship. You know, we couch it by saying coaching, but as you've pointed out, coaching is relationship. Mm -hmm. For people who are still stuck in that traditional leadership mindset, how can we encourage them to start understanding their role in a relationship mindset? Beautiful question. And what comes up for me is this concept of servant leadership. I know for some of the folks who maybe ascribe to the more traditional leadership theories and philosophies that servant leadership is quite common. I was having a conversation with one of my clients just yesterday about being the leader that your people need you to be. And what that requires is that you remove your ego, which can take a lot of work. Right? But if you put your ego aside and all these specific ideas about what a leader is supposed to do and who a leader is supposed to be, and then you center yourself on what your people need for from you and for your leadership. During times like this, it might look very different than the leader that you have been before. What I know, and I support leaders to wrestle with this, which is, well, that's not me. I'm not that kind of leader. I don't have those tools. I don't want to become that leader. And I would say, okay, that's fine. You don't have to. Are you the best leader for these people? Where would you best fit? Yeah, because it sounds like the people you're leading want something else or need something else. So it's either a question, how willing are you to become that leader or how willing are you to make room for that leader to show up? Right? And that's a hard question. That's a question I've asked multiple, multiple clients of mine. That's a question I think should be asked for everybody right now. Like if you are finding yourself as a leader, and I'm, I'm speaking to potential clients, or I'm speaking to some of my current clients. If you're finding yourself at odds with the requests of the people whom you're leading, if you're finding yourself in a place where you are frustrated or angered by the demands of the leadership role that you're in and you're not finding yourself wanting to become that leader, saboteurs would say that you might be a little scared to grow. And so I want to invite folks to, to get in touch with what's happening for them and why. And if it's just fear, that's something you can deal with. But if you truly don't want to become the leader that the people want you to become, then it might be time to have another conversation. Kayvon, this has been brilliant content. Some of our listeners will want to reach out to you. Where would they follow your writing and contact you? You can reach us at connecting at consciously.one or connecting at consciously one. That's like a central email for all inquiries. Uh, you can also follow me on LinkedIn at Kayvon Tucker, uh, K-V-O-N-T-U-C-K-E-R, easy to find on LinkedIn. You can also find me on Instagram where I post different kind of content, lots of pictures of me and my family and my daughter, but sometimes I post some leadership stuff there as well. Uh, that's at consciously underscore Kayvon, at consciously underscore Kayvon. Those are the best ways to reach out to me. Thank you so much for sharing your story so genuinely. As Dan said, this is such an important conversation and so many people need to hear what it looks like to come out the other side and be happy. 
it's beautiful to meet you and we look forward to our next conversation. Thanks so much. I look forward to it as well. Mm-hmm.